Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Criterion Cast, where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on May 9th, 2020. I'm Jordan Espin. I'll be your host today for episode 206 as we shine the spotlight on Paisan, Roberto Rossellini's 1946 film about the Italian campaign. Made immediately after his seminal film, Rome, Open City, this is Spine 498 and the second installment in the Rossellini War Trilogy. It is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, as we noted last episode, and several landmark dates have passed in the months since our last recording. April 28, 1945, Mussolini was shot and then hung in the streets of Milan, where his body was brutalized by the public. April 30th, Hitler committed suicide. May 2nd, Berlin surrendered. May 7th, all of Germany offered a ceasefire and unconditional surrender. The following day, the surrender was accepted by the Allies. That was yesterday, which is typically celebrated by the UK and America as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. But the Soviets don't, or the Russians don't, celebrate VE Day on the 8th. They celebrate it today because Stalin was incensed and insisted that Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel sign the surrender. And so the ceremony was restaged in Berlin, the capital. And that makes today also the 75th anniversary of VE Day. But either way, the beginning of the end of the war in Europe started with Sicily. And that is also where Paisan begins. But first, let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott and I. And the rumor was you were looking for a good, rare, psychological horror film to watch last night. Did you find one? Uh, yes. However, uh, I ended up having to work late anyway. I couldn't watch any movies uh, besides trying to finish Paisan. Uh, and yeah, coming to you guys live from the streets of L.A. in a very Paisan environment myself. I have to record outside today, so the listeners may catch some uh, peripheral noise. It's all neorealism. Exactly. <laughs> And next we have David Blakesley. I saw some great pictures of you and your wife among fields of blooming tulips. How are you and your family doing in Michigan today, David? Doing good. It is still tulip time out here, although the usual crowds and festivities are all kind of, you know, uh, well, they're, they're thinner than they would normally be, but there are still people milling about and doing their best to approximate some level of social distancing at least. Uh, and, of course, there's no stopping the flowers. They're just going to do what they're going to do. So there's beautiful tulips uh, all around West Michigan as uh, spring is kicking in over here. Well, that'll be a nice Mother's Day for Julie tomorrow. Well, yeah, she's a professional florist, so uh, she's had a very difficult and strenuous week because they did call her back. I'm not exactly sure how florists are essential businesses, but uh, – that's yeah. what happened, and she uh, she worked her uh, yeah she worked her butt off this week just putting arrangements together and bringing joy to uh, people who might not be able to visit their moms in person, but at least can send flowers. So, yeah, we're just going to have a relaxing time and maybe have the the kids come over and we'll talk across the backyard fence or something. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. We're also supposed to get some cold weather out here, but I know we're not supposed to talk about weather on these podcasts, so I'll just keep it moving along. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about the no weather rule. I'll have to remember well, that. There's been comments here and there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, third, we have Arik Devins. You're taking a small break from fatherhood duty to be with us this morning. And I guess it'll be your wife's first Mother's Day tomorrow. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. Very. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to, um, right after this, I'm going to make a card with my child's handprints. So it'll be, that'll be nice. Very cool. Don't tell me the weather, though. I don't want to know. <laughs> See, I, I didn't. <laughs> you know the weather. Aren't we, like, pretty near each We're other? pretty close, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I already know, yeah. 
so we're going to talk in depth about this film, listeners, so be warned that many details will be revealed over the course of our conversation. And um, I'll just say a quick bit about what the film is. It's somewhat like a short story anthology. It's a film split into six independent and distinct chapters, and it shows us the path of the Allies liberating Italy through the Italian campaign near the end of the war, uh, starts in Sicily, and stretches all the way up to the Po River Delta in the north, you know, traversing geography, time, and the progress of the war effort to oust the Nazis. It's decentralized and literary. The whole thing takes place, or rather each chapter seems to take place in medias rest. So there's a starting and stopping point at more poetic intersections than traditional narrative goalposts. And each vignette has its own exclusive set of characters. Chapter one takes place in Sicily. Chapter two takes place in Napoli. Three is in Rome. Four is in Florence. And then there's a chapter at this convent in the Northern Mountains, and then the final chapter, the Po River Peninsula on the Adriatic Coast. Starts off in 1943. By my math, the third chapter actually is the latest in the timeline. I wonder if you guys track that as well. But then we end in the sixth chapter in the winter of 1944. And I'd like to start by just getting first impressions. Scott, why don't you tell us what you think of this film and, and how you experienced seeing it this time? Yeah, this was one that I first saw when the DVDs came out. Uh, I saw it pretty close after uh, Rome Open City, and at the time was less impressed. It's definitely a less uh, kind of immediate uh, film. There's not kind of the rush, the melodramatic plot that we talked so long about in the last episode. Um, be, by nature, it's more episodic and segmented. And so I, I found it just to be kind of, I don't know, kind of a disappointment. I couldn't really get on board with it. But watching it again this time, nearly 10 years later for this episode, I was really bolt over by it. I thought it was really remarkable. Uh, it's immediacy less uh, overt, but I think more kind of ingrained in the nature of it. Clearly, Rossellini was working with more resources and had more locations on which he could film, um, which really added to the texture of the place and the beauty of what he was trying to capture, the beauty and the kind of harrowing nature of it all. Um, just a much wider canvas to work with on both a practical and emotional level. Uh, but at the same time, the episodes are so often inconclusive and irresolute, and he keeps that nature of kind of unfinished uh, storylines that kind of ended Rome Open City, and here is kind of the very nature of it, like, people are connecting, but will it be enough kind of thing. Um, I, I found it incredibly touching. Yeah, I'm so glad that you uh, warmed up to it on the second viewing. What about you, David? Very much like Scott. I mean, I, I remember seeing it years ago and thinking, okay, the, that was interesting, kind of a period piece and little snapshots of, of life in Italy during a really difficult time. But yeah, maybe my attention was just more focused. I was incredibly impressed. I mean, this is a really powerful film uh, because it doesn't just focus on, you know, what's happening in Italy. I mean, th that's the setting of everything, but it's really about these these cultures uh, coming into conflict with each other you know the american army and different representatives of the military you know uh, the invading force uh, are really kind of woven throughout you know all of all of the episodes and it's it's the kind of inability to communicate it's these two kind of worlds coming into collision really sometimes several you know the germans kind of play their own part as well and as we talked about in the last episode on Rome Open City, all the subsections of Italian society and culture are all kind of represented here, or at least you know many of them are represented. And uh, so to me, there's just a great poignancy as as these characters are all 
kind of having these encounters with each other. There's chaos, there's confusion, there's tragedy. There are moments of comedy, but it's it's a it's a pretty heavy film altogether. But I was, as Scott said, also I was just very moved and really feel like this is this is pretty close to a masterpiece type of work, um, even though the smallness of the scale and the fact that it's kind of an anthology of sh- of short films may not immediately bring that word to mind. It's broad ranging in its scale and its scope, but it's not what you think of as an epic type of movie. And yet the the themes that it touches on are are all pretty huge. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I really feel this is possibly the best film in the trilogy to sort of put that ahead of reviewing the third film. It's just, there's something so unique about it. And I think masterpiece is, is the only word I could use to describe it. I did kind of love it immediately the first time I saw it. Uh, and you're seeing it for the first time, Arik. Did you feel like you had immediate appreciation for this? Or do you think you might benefit from a second viewing later on? <laughs> uh. I didn't like this at all. Oh no! <laughs> like, and I, I Arik's role continues. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really, I th- he's referring to Fiddler on the Roof, but I really yes, liked yes. Ro- Rome Open City. <laughs> Just to clarify, in, in our last episode, we were all very much on board with Rome Open City. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did not like this, and and actively hated at least one of these chapters. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna take some small measure of hope. From what Scott and David have said, that maybe ten years from now I will try it again and uh, <laughs> rediscover it. But no, I, 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 I mean, my notes are all over the place, and, and we'll get into it. But I, I challenge whether or not there's anything neo-realist about this. That's one conversation. But I, I just have no concept. I, I watched some of the special features to at least try to maybe understand what the point of any of this was. Um, but I, I still don't really feel like I have a great sense of that. So maybe. You you all will be able to help me with that, but I think this was all kind of extremely melodramatic, uh, uh, extraordinarily specific while trying to tell a general story, which kind of failed on both levels for me. Uh, I you know we'll get into it when we get there, but I hated the chapter in the monastery and kind of hated the one. I think it's the one right after that where they're running through the streets. We can we can get into that, and I just I did not enjoy really really almost anything about this movie. I, I I, I really, really, really did not like it at all. So um, this will be a great yeah. conversation. Then uh, we will have all aspects. We will be our own culture clash. Just yeah, I'm, I was very nervous because I knew I knew at least at least some of your opinions. So <laughs> it's not easy being the the one naysayer, but you know I'm here. Let's let's get into that one of the points you just raised, which is uh, I wasn't sure we were going to talk about this, but is this a neorealist film? Yeah, because I feel like in some ways it does a better job. At adopting Rome Open City, yeah, and in other ways, it does not. So, tell us yeah. more about what your take on that was. I would, I would definitely agree with that statement because, I mean, for for sure, Rome Open City has more of a plot, you might say, like a kind of that kind of old school. I think Rossellini even says it in one of the interviews, like in in Rome Open City, he was still kind of doing more conventional movie stuff, and and I would agree with that. I just think in this one, there's, I didn't feel these stories were very unbelievable to me mostly like the the first one these are trained soldiers who have been in italy for some amount of time i just find it very difficult to believe that that one guy would keep lighting cigarettes and fires like it just seemed completely ridiculous and only designed to set up the sort of tragedy of the scene Uh, that's an example in the in the in the um in the second one the the american soldier is he drunk like we're not really yeah 
led to believe what's going on. It's not well presented. So it just seems absolutely ridiculous. And I guess apparently them selling people, specifically black people, was kids like buying who would get to essentially grift a, a, a soldier. It was a real thing. But not knowing that, I was just like, what the hell is going on here? And, you know, don't, when we get to the monastery, we'll, we'll get into the monastery. But, you know, um, I just – we have a whole thing where these people are just – I mean maybe we're seeing this play out in real life right now with people's responses to what's going on in our time. But these, these two people are just like causing everyone problems and running around through the streets for no explained reason or half of an explained reason. I mean I don't know. I just didn't feel like anything felt very real. So uh, – and, and, and you're I, talking still specifically about segment two in Napoli? No, I, all of them had – the only one that I felt felt real was the last one when they're in, in the Po River. Okay. But I think that's right. I, I would have, we, We're going to go through them, I assume. But um, I, yeah. I, just, I just didn't feel like this – like I said, it felt general and too specific. So because these were very specific people's stories but not told – but the whole thing was kind of being told in a general way because each segment was preceded by the sort of newsreel kind of concept, right? Right. So it's like, oh, this is what's going on and we're going to show you what's going on. And then it's like very specific people's stories that we don't really get to know well enough for me to care about. And it's extremely – particular and i didn't buy all the details it just felt it just felt again and the music uh, it might have a lot of it i I realize i'm kind of rambling and all over the place but it it also might have been the music because it's still very melodramatic music the renzo rossellini score yeah the music is music is very traditional but i want to push back i'm not sure quite you've i'm not sure quite you've articulated an argument against it being neorealist because like if we want to think about what's neorealist it's a rejection against hollywood glamour this does that non-professional yes. actors this does that yes uh location shooting and natural lighting this does that um this does documentary flavor and the use of actual documentary footage that wasn't shot for the film it does a lot of the things that i think of as the neorealist tradition I agree that it's undermined by things like the melodrama of the vignettes and the music, which is very heavy-handed. But that's why I would feel like this is more neorealist than Room Open City and has a certain oh, – it, also, it also explores the underclass and poverty. What do you think about those things? Does that yeah. feel neorealist to you or do you feel like it's just so overwhelmingly melodramatic that that stuff kind of recedes? Yeah, I guess for me those are all sort of – and maybe it's just on my part, honestly, a lack of a deep enough understanding of the neorealist movement, which, it, like many film movements, seems to be a little bit less specific than we now act like it was. You know, in the mm-hmm. same way that the Nouvelle Vague, you know, not all those directors really fit into each other, and they don't all have anything to do with Cahiers de Cinema. You know, kind of these things kind of get defined in the moment and then later, and then kind of you try to kind of put the pieces together. But I would agree with you that all of those things are trappings of neorealism but that's what i would say is that the film is full of a lot of the trappings but because he's still for me anyway because the story still feels very melodramatic and very set up and because the music kind of supports that reading of the story it doesn't have the kind of sort of bleak honesty or or like just sort of this is how it is kind of we're almost doing cinema verite but it's it is staged but can you even tell because This, these are unprofessional actors, and it's almost like we just filmed real people doing this. It doesn't have that. Yeah. And I think maybe Rossellini never quite ever delivers that. You know, this is the same year that Shoeshine comes out from De Sica, and then 
Uh, later we'll get Bicycle Thieves and Umberto D and things that feel like like really more honest representations of life, yeah. like what you're describing. And I'm not sure Rossellini ever does better than he does here. And I'm, I'm satisfied with it, but I'd like to bring David and Scott in if you have any observations about where this fits into the tradition of new realism. Well, I think for me, uh, I'm kind of on the same wavelength as new realism that Rossellini seems to be, which is, you know, <laughs> use the parts that work for you and uh, don't worry about the rest. Uh, I think he gains a lot from the location shooting, um, and sort of the not necessarily need to fit into a tr- typical dramatic structure, certainly with re- regards to having a clean resolution. Um, but when he wants to use tradition, he does. Uh, and that's fine with me. You know, I am not about having purity of any kind in any artistic work. I like it when super slick Hollywood productions have a, you know, hint of kind of unreal and unpredictable or very real and very unpredictable elements that kind of add a wildness to it. And I like when uh, very kind of neorealist or otherwise realist uh, productions have an element of traditional structure to them. Uh, I like the mixing of those elements. I like uh, kind of the flavor they provide. Yeah. So it'll be just, just even before David jumps in, which I'm excited to hear, I, I do want to make the point that whether or not it's neorealist has no bearing on whether or not I liked it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so as far as the neorealistic label or tag or you know subgenre, what movement, whatever. I, yeah, I think this is still part of the process of that film tradition establishing itself. Again, I, I seriously doubt that Rossellini was there thinking, okay, here's my next move into neorealism. He, he's just <laughs> making. Well, yeah, he's he's no. making movies. You know, he you know he he obviously scored a very significant success with Rome Open City. He decided he wanted to continue telling stories of what was happening in Italy. Uh, you know, in this you know chaotic transitional moment from uh, you know occupation to liberation, and he again shows some of the things that made open city a success you know the location shooting the mix of amateurs and 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 you know maybe some degree of professionalism uh, but with greater resources he and and a decision to make tell multiple stories you know that that's kind of set him on this course it, like many other things I, I think about like the new wave in american rock music you know in the mid 70s there was the ramones and there was television and blondie and talking heads and you know they just happened to be bands that all kind of came up around the same time they were all doing kind of different things from each other but because they didn't fit into the arena rock conventions they all got sort of lumped together as part of this new wave slash punk rock and then there were little micro you know uh, clicks within all of that as far as which is which and 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 i i kind of feel like you know the post-war italian cinema uh especially those directors that adopted a certain uh, stance or perspective became new realism and then by the time you get to those later films uh, bicycle thieves and berto d and and others now you've got sort of this high style of classical neorealism because now the directors are a little bit more conscious of the fact that we're making movies of a certain sort and they're building on that or they're refining their their technique or their perspective. So, you know, I guess all that to say that, yeah, to me, this is still kind of an emerging uh, style of filmmaking that we see going on here. And and as I'm sitting there, you know, considering Eric Arik's critique, I, I do think about how much benefit of the doubt 
do I give to the storytellers here? We've got five different screenwriters, uh, each of whom were assigned to tell a different story. There's probably a little bit of overlapping and collaboration going on there. Among them, Federico Fellini and Rossellini himself and a few others. And I guess as a, as a viewer some 75 years later, I'm saying, well, these people were there. I don't think they're just, you know, pulling this out of thin air. I think these are probably anecdotes that had been in circulation uh, at the time, and they decided to make sort of a filmed version of, of real-life events, maybe glossed up a little bit, maybe, you know, uh, re, you know, uh, kind of distilled for more poignant melodramatic effect so that it, you know, the heartbreak and the agony and the anguish of it all sort of comes through clearly and resonates with audiences who are watching these events from the distance, you know, from the comfort of their theater, <laughs> wherever in the world they might be at the time saying, wow, imagine being in Italy while all this is going on. So I think, you know, I, I did give a lot of credence to the stories and say, these are probably, you know, slightly modified, um, tellings of things that really happened to me. There, there did seem a believability to it. You know, I'm always conscious of course, that they're going to, you know, idealize things to a certain extent and the timing and, you know, the way the characters, you know, connect and interact with each other. Um, what is that? I don't know if it's the third or fourth episode, but the one where the soldier reminisces about the girl that he met six months ago. And even though she's sitting right there, he's either so drunk or just so changed that he doesn't recognize her. And yeah, I mean, that, that did seem a little bit soapy, you know, but, but yes. I could still imagine a certain extent to which you know, the, those six months from the exhilaration of being liberated to kind of the, the dreariness and the fatigue and even the corruption that's kind of occurred with each of those individuals over these past six months, they do become unrecognizable. So, you know, there's a, there's a poetic license, I guess, that, that, that informs all of these stories. And I was, I was along with it because I feel like the underlying tragedy that each of these little episodes points to, uh, that is real. That is the cost of war. It's not just battlefield heroics. It's senseless death and violence and destruction that serves no purpose. I mean, there's nothing strategically being accomplished by practically any of the outcomes of these stories as far as world history or political advantage or, you know, individual or collective freedoms are concerned. You know, people are people's are dying. Their lives are being wasted for just circumstance just coincidence just bad timing even and, when the collective but, good yeah. is being pursued i mean i think you could yeah. make the argument that the occupation by the allies is it, this film goes to some trouble to show us that that has its own consequences even though everybody wanted that uh well not everybody but but the italians who were ready for their alliance with the nazis to end and and ready for the war to be over were eager to have the americans and the other allies arrive but it also transformed things in a terrible way the allies bombed the cities too and they also reduced uh, people to to dead anonymous bodies and then the culture also transformed and i think um yeah some of these stories do feel anecdotal at best i think uh rossellini described the whole movie as being a mix of fact and fiction toward a greater truth of the way that it that it was i'm paraphrasing but he said something along those lines um and i think he's looking for those those symbolic truths so is it hard to believe is it in some way hard to buy that this man and woman can't recognize each other right 
but I find that just incredibly touching uh, that, that they have transformed so much during these six months that the toll of those six months is so great that it's not that they don't recognize the other person as much as they don't recognize themselves. If that seems a little, a little soapy. Okay. I, I was, I was along for the ride. Yeah. I guess, I guess the, 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 the biggest sin, in, <laughs> that's a weird word to use in this case, but the, <laughs> the, the biggest sin for this movie for me is that I didn't connect with like any of this in a, in an emotionally moving way. So like people, people say that that's the, that's the thing I've heard the most is that, oh my God, it's so raw and, and powerful and traumatic and you feel the reality of, of war in a different way and you see the, the, the effect it has on all these people. And I'm just like, how these, the, None of these – I mean, in a couple of the stories, I can see how you could get there. And actually, ironically, the prostitution one maybe is one of them. But like it – even though I completely agree with David that it's maybe the most uh, Hollywoodish kind of tweaked kind of of the, of the stories. But it's just like I don't care about any of these people enough to to buy into their story and to, to be – moved and i, I want to be moved you know what i mean but <laughs> i just don't it just doesn't and and the order of the stories kind of does that to me too because by the time we get to the sixth one and i really do think that that one is is pretty powerful uh in a lot of ways i just am i was so checked out by that point that i i couldn't i couldn't even get into that one which was i think if that had been um i realized timeline maybe that doesn't work but i i just was so out at that point that i couldn't even get into that do you think one of the reasons why you struggle to connect with the characters that were th- with them, uh, each set of characters for such a brief amount of time, is the, is the partiality of the storytelling? See, a, I do. I issue? do wonder about that. I I don't think I don't think that's enough to answer it because I certainly have seen other. You know, this is very innovative for sure for the time period to do the episodic style, and uh, it, it deserves a lot of credit for that. But other films have done it since then. Right, and I do enjoy those films, and there are, there are films I love that have a lot of characters that don't necessarily interrelate with, interrelate with each other, or a lot of different things going on, or even this kind of vignette style that I like. So I think it it can be done. It's just each one, if you know, if we if we go through the stories one at a time, I could say like, okay, well, this is this is my issue with this one, and this is kind of why I didn't I didn't find my way in. You know what I mean? Well, let's start with the first one then. Yeah, okay. It's, it takes place in Sicily. So the the whole film, you know, I think. I think it was Arik brought up that we have this documentary framework. We get a voiceover. We get authentic World War II footage of, although, you know, to to make one quick last point about the neorealist tradition, it, it can't be emphasized enough that it wasn't just that this was done with location shooting. Like, this film was made right after the conflict ended. So all of the rubble in the streets, all of the all of the lapidated surroundings, it's, it's real rubble, right? <laughs> uh, and, and often because... Even though I think most of the English-speaking actors were cast out of um, New York, almost everyone else, I believe, was depicting uh, someone just like who they were. You know, the street urchin was a street urchin. The German officer was an ex-German officer, et cetera, et cetera. There were POWs. There were German POWs that they used. Yeah. This is right, crazy, right, right. by the way. It's totally crazy it, to, to think about those conversations in the back rooms like, well, and then you're going to do this and we're going to pay you this much and, and put your uniform back on. Huh? Yeah. It's completely wild. Yeah. It's wild. Uh, okay. So, so the film starts with the, with the documentary footage of you know, the, the arrival on the shores of Sicily. We're being told that this was like uh, July of 43. And then at nighttime, the troops started making their way through the landscape. We get a regiment of 
of American troops arriving at this church in a small Italian town. They're trying to move further north. They get the help of a local girl who knows how to go through this lava canal without stepping on German mines. And the Americans are in pursuit of Germans that have retreated. The girl who is acting as their guide, uh, Carmela, she's also looking for her father and brother who've, I guess, gone off fishing but disappeared. They successfully get to a castle on the seaside where Carmilla and one of the soldiers, Joe, are left behind while the rest of them go further, at which point, after a certain amount of time between Joe from Jersey and Carmilla, the Germans arrive, they shoot Joe, the American troops hear the gunshot, come back, they find their dead comrade, they think Carmilla did it, by that time she's picked up Joe's gun, killed one of the uh, Nazis, and then they've killed her. And that's the shot that they heard. They heard Joe's carbine being shot by Carmella as she, but she she had already seen that Joe had been. Oh, you're shot, right. You're right. Been mortally wounded, so she basically took out her revenge, uh, even though she probably knew it was suicidal. I mean, she's completely outnumbered. These are professional soldiers, but she gives her one shot. She takes out. I don't know if it's the exact German soldier who shot Joe or not, but. Uh, Maybe that would have been a little bit more of that poetic license if it was. And, of course, they, they took it out on her. And that's that's the tragedy right there is the Americans see their dead buddy and they assume that that little bitch, that Italian, uh, is the one who, who killed him. You know, she, she turned traitor. And they should have been smart enough not to trust one of the locals. And that's the hardened lesson that they're going to learn. You know, I'm kind of extrapolating from there. But, you know, they think she took one of their lives when actually she... You know, it was a bit more heroic and noble than that. Again, is that a little schmaltzy? Perhaps. But to me, it's like it's just the kind of misunderstanding, the miscommunication. And again, that uh, whole inability to connect uh, the partial truths and misunderstandings that antagonize and further all of these conflicts. I mean, that's that's sort of another theme that just runs through each of these episodes. And uh, I, I thought it was a pretty powerful start. Yeah, I also think, I mean, just the casting of the young woman has been written about so much that she was, you know, really a citizen of Italy, really went through the war, all that stuff. And you can see, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but we can see more Hollywood version of the movie having her be a little bit more spunky or a little bit more uh, romantic or whatever. But there's just something behind her eyes that's kind of like lost so much already that adds so much texture to the uh, kind of conventional nature of the story. And even if it kind of falls a traditional i don't mean ironic as in the modern kind of hipster way but a dramatically ironic structure um (laughs) even if it kind of follows that like just her presence and the way she moves throughout the scene uh gives it a whole other dimension that i you know you can't quite define and which makes it kind of uh blatantly cinematic do you think just as kind of a random aside before I get into this one? Do you think the fact that the guy here is Joe and the guy in the next one is Joe is this a GI Joe reference? Like, why are all the American soldiers named Joe? I thought they were all going to be named Joe. Yeah, that's the the theme. You know, Joe's yeah. from America, or that's the old cliche. Hey, Joe got chewing gum. You know, from right. Old mag- magazines yeah. and stuff like that. For sure. So, I, For sure. but you know, you think they could have done a little bit of differentiation? Yeah, just there, like what the hell? Know, right. So, um, okay, so. This starts out pretty good and stuff. My 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 main issues with this particular chapter are first of all, how is he that stupid? Like that he's going to light this light, especially given that not five minutes before in the film, he started to light another light and all of the soldiers around him were like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, don't do that. 
Like, how has he lived this long if he's just that stupid, first of all? Second of all, she's – they cannot really communicate and they're kind of having a moment, but it's not that much of a moment because they can't they're, – they're, they're not – they're starting to get there or whatever and he dies. But she has a mission. The only reason she's even with them there is because she was planning to leave them to go find her family. And now I'm supposed to believe that she – it's so traumatic to her that he's been killed – that she's going to suicidally attempt to kill these Germans, I guess taking out all of her anger. But her father and family are still out there, and she thinks she knows where they are, and she's not going to them? Like, I don't... I, I For me, the story would be... I don't know. I feel like the story would make more sense if she left and they came back and they thought she did it, which would... Because then she would kind of be... She left... So that's kind of a complicity, I guess, but she didn't do it, and they could still have the wrong idea. But, like, the fact that she then goes and tries to shoot this guy just to me was like, what the heck is she doing? Like, she – I didn't buy that that this was – that she was at that point where she would throw away her own life because, as you said, it's completely suicidal just because of, of this guy that she's known for five minutes that she's barely even been able to talk to and who is an idiot. See, I don't think it's because of the guy at all. I mean, I – don't don't forget, like – these German soldiers represent more than just the the group of men that are in front of her. I mean, the amount of devastation that they might actually, in her mind, be responsible for, even though they're gross enough on their own. I mean, they're, they're threatening to kind of group rape her, right? Yes. So, uh, so they're kind of gross enough on their own. You said rage. I think that's right. I think it's rage that's been built up over a long period of time, and, and Joe is, is, is an excuse. And that's fair, but she's managed to survive all this time. This is the end of the war, and this has been an awful time and an awful period, and she has managed to survive clearly by being pretty resourceful, and she has a mission. And I just – if she didn't have a mission, if her family was dead, then I would well, completely – she might think they are. But she, she doesn't, doesn't really know she's where they trying are. to get to them. She is, but she says they should have come back by now. And I would imagine in wartime when someone doesn't come back by now, that often means they're not coming back. I also think this is – kind of where uh, her performance comes into play, where because we her motivations are clear dramatically, but I think the way she plays them are less than clear. And I, her kind of wild decision at the end, I bought as kind of the pent-up anger we've been seeing behind her eyes the whole time um, that she just finally couldn't take anymore. Here was a chance she could unleash some of that on some people who definitely deserved it. Um, and she was going to take that chance. As to the soldier lighting the match, I guess... It's often overlooked, I think, how young most of the army was uh, during World True. War II and how prone to kind of young people's mistakes they were. Uh, and I kind of chalked it up to that, I guess. But then I wouldn't have him be reprimanded two seconds before that for that. I mean, I don't know if you've dealt with many 17-year-olds recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, fair enough. T- to me, the reprimand set... To, yeah, to me, stage. the reprimand sort of sets the stage yeah. for like why that's sure. a, a that's a, a big mistake. But sure. you know, you can talk about fatigue. You can talk about this guy who's maybe you know getting a little bit of an infatuation with this girl, or thinking that maybe he can you know take this to some kind of a you know sexual thing. I mean, obviously that's all it's all insinuated there. But he he just got loose and sloppy. He figures there's nobody out there who's going to see this little match for just a second, and yeah. boom, it's the fatal mistake that costs his life. I mean, he may have been just recruited and drafted and pulled in he's not necessarily a, a cagey you know multi-year veteran of the war he's just this is his, his number came up and he's part of the invasion squad to italy 
actually. Um, and, and for the girl, too. I mean, this is probably the first time she's ever had her hands on an actual weapon. You know, it's not like she had access to guns and there it is right there. But but I think it's a debatable point that you raise, Eric. I mean, this you know that that self preservation instinct to just run and get the hell out of there is is pretty strong. And if she's sees that her you know her friend her companion there has just been shot and killed, uh, I can see plenty of motivation to say, okay, it's time for me to hit the road. And, yeah, I and think the I think the movie danger. motivation right. is to go and do this great suicide and take out her rage and give us this dramatic right. ending. But the real motivation, the the realist motivation, you one might say, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. is to just leave, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I just I think that the fact that she doesn't, the fact that we get the dramatic irony uh, moment, as as um, Scott put it, is probably one of the things that starts to build my resistance to the later stories. Is like that's absolutely a movie thing, and maybe that's me having false expectations coming into this movie that I'm watching. Um, one thing I did want to ask of y'all: What did you make of the fact that early on they have so they have one guy that speaks Italian? And he says it's because his father's from Jella. And one of the guys says, there's no one with that name in Jella. And he's like, yes, there is. And then that's not – that's just left there. And I'm just like, what was that? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's something that's playing to the locals there. I mean, the, the, the Italian guy who seems the most kind of resistant to the GI presence, I mean, maybe he's giving voice to that kind of – you know who are these dirty Americans coming over here? We've got our, we can fight our own war or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine sort of some local prejudice that's just kind of disgusted by these uncouth barbarians from North America coming over and telling him. So he's how just going to gonna say that things. no matter what. He could have said the same last yeah. name as the guy himself. He'd been like, "There's no one with that name here." Yeah, yeah, just just kind of uh, you know, kind of a, a, a prejudice, if you will, uh, sure. just to try to undercut whatever claim to legitimacy the Americans might have coming into yeah, their territory. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But yeah, so I think it's the dramatic irony issue. I just don't believe that she would do that. I believe that a movie version of her would do that, and it creates a nice like Raymond Chandler style ending, but not Raymond Chandler, Raymond Carver style ending. But I just don't, I just don't buy it in in real life as much. I guess. But the dramatic irony, in in as far as it is a repercussion of characters not being able to understand each other, specifically because they're not all speaking the same language from different cultural points of view, is a theme that is applied to every segment. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So, like in the in the second segment, we have a different outcome. We have you already talked about this this MP also named Joe, and yes, he's like belligerently drunk, right? Because this is after the uh, liberation of Napoli has I taken see. place. Okay. Yeah. And so so he's in the employ of just you know helping maintain order in the city, but he's doing a terrible job because he's become part of the problem. And I'm not sure, it was Rossellini who uh, said on one of the supplements that this is a true thing, where the some of the street urchins and con artists would, I guess... I guess they were selling the opportunity to yeah, take advantage over. of somebody. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think it was specifically just, you know, black soldiers. It was any soldier that looked like they could be profited off of. You would sell the opportunity so there wouldn't be a bunch of people ganging up and therefore spoiling the con. Yeah, it hits um, differently in the U.S. than it probably did in Italy at that time. I'll just say that. And in 2020 than it did in 1940, whatever. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, the, the segment doesn't shy away from racial politics at all. True. So this this one street urchin Pasquale, um, he doesn't actually win the bidding war for for Joe, but then a bunch of other MPs, I guess, are showing up on the scene. So he kind of ends up grabbing Joe's hand, and they end up in um, a puppet show. And one of the first things that, the, the, or the next thing that addresses the you know the racial 
uh, aspects of this particular segment is <laughs> yeah. there's a puppet show going on where there's medieval soldiers who are being told to kill the Moors. And so Joe uh, gets up on stage and, and sort of faux boxes with the, with the medieval uh, soldiers to defend yeah. the Moors. And then, you know, so they, they don't speak the same language, this little kid and Joe, but they end up finding more connection than than not and it's even through the theft of joe's things that just to rush to the end because we got six segments um he (laughs) discovers that you know this little kid is stealing because even though joe has this long monologue talking about how you know he he makes fun of the fact he's gonna get this huge hero's welcome when he goes home and then he's at the end of his sort of drunk rant he says like i bet i don't want to go home because i live in this shack and then he is exposed to what true poverty looks like what what true desperation looks like in the uh, Naples underground. And he, he lets the kid keep whatever he's stolen because that's literally the least he can do for him. Yeah, I guess, and I don't want to monopolize the conversation, but I, I, I guess my, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard because it's like all of you on one side of, anyway, uh, I guess my, my, my issue with this is like, what does Rossellini know about the poverty of African-Americans in the, in, in the United States in the forties? Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's just a it's a weird choice because it feels like what the story is telling me is that the that that this guy thinks, oh my god, he's creating this narrative for himself about how he's going to go back and be celebrated. But we know that black soldiers that came back from World War II were not necessarily celebrated. Uh, they came back to the same racial politics in the U.S. that they had left, and that that there was quite a lot of poverty. And it feels like he's saying, yeah, that sucks, but. Look at this guy's this kid situation. His parents are dead. This is all really awful, which it totally was. I mean, that, that that's completely realistic. But it's just like, wh- why did you choose? Like, I really feel like he's trying to make that point that this is that this is the least I can do for you because man, I live in a shack, but this is so much worse. And it just, I don't know. It it feels very. And maybe part of this is that I, I, and this was my problem with Rome Open City as well is that these movies are completely ignoring the fact that Italy was one hundred percent complicit and involved in their own destruction and they never they they were just supposed to feel bad it's in a movie for italians we're just supposed to feel bad for italians there's virtually no mention at any point of their own involvement or the fact that they were all gloriously or not all but largely gloriously singing the fascist praise two minutes earlier and so i don't give them as much benefit of the doubt as i should um i have more anger towards them than i maybe i should i think look i think arc we can say that this film has also a propagandistic mission yeah. just like Rome yeah. Open City did. I think we can admit that that, that yeah. there's there's a there's a blatant attempt to to kind of rally uh, a nationalistic uh, identity uh, right. in a positive light. But without saying that 100% of the people of Italy were No, no, and I I, the, I, did, I did just say that, that not You everyone, did just say but, I mean like yeah. like saying like 100% of America is 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 for Trump. No, no, no. I I did like, just say that. True. I just mean like, you know, it, it is the fascism was very popular in Italy. So a large percentage of the population was on board and uh, not everyone. There was always not everyone, but a lot of people. And I just feel that it's, it, you're right. It's just, maybe it's the propaganda propagandistic element of trying to redefine everything that happened to Italy as a tragedy for Italy uh, in this moment that makes sense from an Italian perspective, but annoys me, which is not, not Rossellini's problem. I would also say, uh, to jump ahead a couple segments, um, I know the monastery is your least favorite of them, but I think yes. that is actually an example <laughs> of uh, Rossellini taking directly at Italians. That the, there's this kind of uh, collective group thing. 
well, okay, hang on. So let me finish. <laughs> um, okay, sorry, sorry. Very no, sorry. I, did, I I'm, just so, I'm fired to say up. That I'm fired up. I'm sorry. There's uh, a collective groupthink <laughs> within the monastery that uh, the Americans just don't share, in which the Americans come across as more broad-minded and uh, willing to engage other perspectives, whereas the Italian uh, monks are all like uniform and lockstep and it's not directly fascist but i think there's a line you could draw in terms of a sort of mindset see i would buy that explanation except that it's totally undercut by the speech the guy gives at the end for me because it's basically the way i read that speech was he's saying you have restored my faith by what by seeing this incredible thing you're doing and i'm like what the f like oh no. i actually disagree with the reading of that speech Okay, good, because I would like to read it a different way. <laughs> I didn't yeah, I, I think there, I mean, I know we're jumping out of order a little bit, but I think there he's um, trying to extend uh, the same goodwill to them that he extended to uh, his uh, comrades. That, uh, oh, you think he's trying to teach them? In a sense. I, I think, moreover, he's just trying to demonstrate the grace that he feels is most important. So at this, in the same way that he doesn't take it to task... Uh, the rabbi or the uh, Protestant minister in uh, his battalion, he's not going to assault their way of thinking through faith. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But but set it up, Scott. Like, just describe what's happening in that scene. Loosely as I can recall, uh, there there's a trio of American uh, uh, chaplains. General, yeah, chaplains, chaplains. Uh, yeah. who come and kind of take refuge in a monastery. Um, and the monks are very willing to accept them and very like, oh, yes, we'll do everything we can for them until they find out that there is a Jew and a Protestant amongst them. They're baffled that the Catholic priest in the battalion did not like take an opportunity to try to convert them during the two years they were serving together and doesn't even seem to take issue with the fact that they think differently than he does. And they just can't understand this to the extent that uh, when they finally all eat together, all the monks decide to fast uh, in the hopes that God will show the grace to convert these two heathens. But the Catholic priest, the American Catholic priest, you can see him kind of thinking through of various ways he could tackle this. And ultimately, he decides to give this speech thanking the monks for their generosity, thanking them for their gesture in fasting and uh, kind of giving a praise to their uh, certitude and their fortitude in their own faith. Um, and I, that is exactly the kind of irresolute ending that I was kind of praising at the start of the episode, that there are a lot of ways you can read that gesture. And to me, because he's portrayed so decently and the Italian monks are portrayed alternately kind of uh, bumbling and very stubborn-minded um, and kind of amazed at the Americans' inventions, the canned eggs and so forth and the canned milk, um, that they they seem very much behind the times every time they're on screen. And so to me, the ending didn't build to any praise of them, but rather to not exactly condemnation of them, but to a different way uh, that the Italian people might think of their own role in the new world order, that they can't stick to their own ways, that they have to kind of grow with the times and see other perspectives if they're going to make it out of this as a whole country. Yeah, and if I can go ahead and take that, you know, kind of insight of Rossellini's, I, I, he really is. He ad he's addressing his fellow countrymen to say we need to be more broad, open-minded. Uh, we need to be uh, aware of the different things that are happening in this world because we can't just go back to being provincial little Italians 
thinking our fascistic thoughts. Uh, and I think that goes back to episode two with the, with the black soldier. I mean, I think they cast a black soldier very specifically in that role. And I think the awareness of American racism and America's history of slavery and oppression of black people and, and even, you know, Europe's complicitness with all of that, even though they may not have embraced slavery in the same way, I think they still bought into a lot of the, the racial stereotypes. Uh, so I think there was a, a commentary on race issues happening there. And, uh, you know, just because Italy, you know, isn't part of the United States doesn't mean they don't understand about the ongoing, you know, oppression and, and poverty within, you know, the black community uh, over in the USA and in particular maybe down south, which is at least how I read the, the guy living in a shack. Maybe he's coming from a sharecroppers or some other kind of, you know, background like that. You know, Italy certainly is, is entitled to give their little socio-cultural critiques towards America as we are to them and their society. And certainly Hollywood had done plenty of portrayals of other cultures and and made insights as to how they might want to improve themselves and so i i, I kind of took the the second episode as that and i think again rossellini is a culturally aware uh, sophisticated artist uh, who's creating media for his uh, fellow citizens to consider and say what ideas what ways of thinking what cultural practices kind of set us up to fall into this disaster that we're now trying to crawl out of and I, I think the 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 rigidity and the and the you know clinging to stubborn orthodoxy of a more judgmental sort that says you shouldn't have a, a relationship with a Protestant and a Jew that doesn't you know first settle this resolution resolve this this uh, dilemma of whose faith is the true one where every conversation has to ultimately be aimed at making a conversion uh, I mean that's still a very powerful way of thinking that afflicts millions of people all around the world in terms of how they see themselves as responsible to their own faith is that I've got to go out and tell everybody who disagrees with me that they're wrong, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's kind of a, a longstanding cultural rift uh, that cuts across all different societies as far as how do we deal with diversity and tolerance and, and uh, different creeds and, and, and different races and, and ethnic traditions for that matter. So, you know, to me, it does feel like uh, he's, he's addressing those types of issues and trying to make them into relatable anecdotes and examples of, of how too uptight of, a, of an approach is just going to perpetuate the problems that, that they've all been living through and they've got to find a better way. The, the the problem with that, I, I like that reading a lot. The, the problem I have with it, I guess, is just that that there's no, to me at least, there's no acknowledgement in the film that Italy had a problem that 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 any other problem other than occupation by Germany. And so, because of that, it doesn't it doesn't read that way to me because I don't get anything from mm -hmm. the film saying we brought we've we are in some way complicit with what has happened. And and so yeah. therefore and therefore I find that hard to believe. The, the other thing I would say, two other things I would say, one. I, I I totally get your point with the uh, black soldier. The problem again I have there is that if the if the ending had been sort of he recognizes that this kid's situation is something he can relate to, uh, then I feel very differently than if it's something that's worse than he can relate to, um, because I think that's uh, judgmental. But to your point, certainly the judgments went the other direction all the time as well. So maybe that's a fair game. But the second thing, and, and this is m maybe. A, a little bit more getting into a whole different area, but with the monastery scene, um, 
I first of all, even if that is what he's saying, I think it's kind of crappy. But also, um, (laughs) this is the first, as far as I know, this is the first time in these two films that Jewish people have been mentioned at all. And to do it in that way at that time, moment in time, we're basically saying like, yeah, but it's cool. Like at the best, you're saying like, yeah, but it's cool. I know he's wrong, but I don't care. Is like ignoring the fact of the reality of the situation you're in because we've it's 1945 or whatever, in 1946 when this movie's being made, and what happened in Germany is very much something that everyone's aware of, and to not address that at all. And in fact, when the Nazis, he did not mention in Rome, Open City, for example. I think we talked about this that when the Nazis and the Germans uh, invaded, they. Um, uh, uh, deported expelled all the other Jews, Jews in Rome. They expelled yeah. them all and, and most of them died. So to not speak to that at all and to have the only Jewish presence be this kind of rabbi who doesn't quite know if he should eat the soup and like doesn't really have any agency and it's really just about this Catholic priest guy being cool enough to not like hate him and then but also saying to them, but I'm also cool enough not to hate you. Look, I'm just cool. It's just to me it just felt so... I don't know. I did not like it at all. But I am coming, to be fair, I am coming there with my own baggage or whatever. Well, this gets into uh, an interesting question that I don't have an answer to at all, if there even is an answer. But it's kind of an off-debated topic in film, cultural, and historical studies, the extent to which any movie about World War II has a responsibility to acknowledge the Holocaust. I I don't have an answer to that. I don't, there might be an answer, I but I don't know... To, that I have one, and Rossellini's sidestepping of that issue here, I totally acknowledge may be problematic, but it's hardly the only World War II movie to take that. Oh yeah, in, sure, guess. for sure. But he's he's doing like this half step. I don't I don't know if, if they need to acknowledge the Holocaust either, and I'm not even specifically saying that the Holocaust needs to be the thing that's mentioned. It's just weird to me that the only mention of a Jewish person is done this way. It's just like there's no other. It just feels very weird to me. But you know, whatever. I have my own agenda. Yeah, I could even say, you know, viewing it kind of through the lens that you've provided to us just now, uh, I can sort of see a certain triteness to it, you know, like the, the Jewish character. I mean, even the Protestant gets to kind of yeah. do his little schlubby, glad-handing, awkward, jokey type of thing. The Jew is really just – he's a bespectacled guy who doesn't really ever say much. He's a prop, exactly. It's just a yeah. concept. Oh, there's a Jew in the house, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I can certainly understand um, – taking offense to that uh you know i'll just have to acknowledge some of my own sort of blindness or you know just it it doesn't speak as directly to me but i certainly can understand and recognize just the the kind of manipulation of that that he doesn't have as he said he doesn't have agency he doesn't really have any other purpose to be there uh except to sort of violate this norm you know right I mean, he does a prayer was, was, right. was he a chaplain to jewish troops uh, were, how many jews were were fighting in these companies how did he get there there's no quite a lot story, actually of course you know, he, he is a for sure a, a chaplain uh, to the jewish troops for sure that's what he's there for but it just feels like sure, he sure. just does that one prayer which neither of the other two of them do and i think that's just so they're like look he's jewish and it's like yeah, it, i don't know it just doesn't feel great you raise very uh, important points eric and i, I really appreciate that in terms of sort of softly recognizing the war crimes by the Italians, which I do think is the motivation of including that Jewish character at all. It's not handled uh, with, with a lot of nuance, but I do think the defense is being mounted in a very kind of benign way. The other thing yeah. I'd say about the uh, American Catholic chaplains 
last comments, which I agree with Scott's interpretation that that has a lot more to do with the procedural kind of manneristic, polite aspect, but he's also directly violating the silence that's that they true. were asked for. That is true. So he is speaking up, um, and I do I do think he, he his his motives can be impacted a little bit by the fact that he was told not to talk at all. Yeah. Um, and then there's another. Uh, we haven't talked about the fourth segment at all. There's a there's a really quick blink and you miss it uh, moment between um, the partisan character Massimo. He's looking for his wife and son. He's looking for information about where they might be. He knows that they're on the other side of Florence, where the Nazis are still active. And he finds a neighbor in the street there or in the square, and he tries to get her to talk to him. And she says, it's the end of the world, my boy. We've sinned so badly. And this has nothing to do with Nazis. It might have something to do with fascism. We're not sure what it's about, but it's there. Yeah. Did you did you notice that? I did notice that, and that and that's a fair that's a fair brought, bring up the monastery scene. The monastery chapter was my least favorite as we've gone over ad nauseum. The chapter we're now going to be talking about that one was my second least favorite, but <laughs> and the last one was my favorite. So I actually do have one I like, but I did notice that, and I do think that that. It, let me put it this way: all of the stuff you all are saying is very interesting and very helpful to me and very valid i would argue that it's also very subtle yeah no i think that's i think that's accurate so maybe that's why a 10-year watch it again with more sensitivity with more on the right night more attuned in the right mood that for scott or even for david was what was needed so hopefully that will happen to me too because i want to like the movie it's also just who you're who you're analyzing here if you're analyzing Rossellini as the filmmaker, as the right. person instrumenting all of the, the the vignettes, then these these problems become a lot more obvious and hard harder to ignore. But if you if you stop ascribing those problems to the individual characters, you know what I mean, and start to think like these are also just small flawed moments. You know, yeah, maybe Joe is like fucking dumb, but he's also in a castle. <laughs> he thinks it's okay to light a match. You know, yeah. maybe Carmela, you know, is doing a suicidal act. She's also just can't believe that she's been threatened to be gang raped, probably not for the first time. And yeah, although she probably a, wouldn't have understood that, but yes, yes, fair enough. Well, they were making gestures, and they I think, were. They were. I think a woman were, knows what it, it's like to be ogled by a group of men with guns. Yeah, probably, probably, even if they're speaking German. Yeah, probably. So, does it make sense that she sacrifices everything? No, but in a moment of emotional spontaneity, she she does that. You know, I and yeah. does, does the chaplain behave in in the most valiant? way no but pe- that's how people behave they they don't do the best and most right moral thing they they struggle yeah 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 i just don't i, I do think that you're you're constructing a scaffolding of of meaning around some of the stuff that i think is maybe there are entry points in the film but not enough for me to build the scaffolding that, that there are enough for you and i think that that's that might just be my failure as a as an audience member um, but it is kind of where I'm at, at least now. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's not your failure. I- I'm enjoying the debate, but like I see your point of view completely. Cool. Yeah, and, and the issues that are being touched on in this film, I mean, all sorts of different hot-button points. You know, we 
when when that topic is raised, whether it's race, religion, you know, uh, war crimes, genocide, uh, etc. I mean, those are those are massive issues. And and Rossellini, I guess you could say to his credit, and I think even you, Eric, would would, would probably agree, is that he's he's moving the conversation into a better place than maybe it had been prior to. But you know, at the same time, not as as boldly as he could have. Maybe there's some concessions or compromises. Maybe there's some some just lack of full awareness. I mean, I think maybe his sensitivity to the plight of the Jews or, or even the plight of the blacks in America, um, he, he was aware of some things, but he, he didn't, you know, he wasn't as deeply immersed in the subject as maybe he could have been or should have been if he's going to dare to address it. You know, that's, that's the yeah. other challenge It's like yeah. when you want to step into the deep water, you better be equipped to, to, you know, to, to back up your point and and maybe that's that's his uh his fault here is that you know he's raising the issues but doing it in a way that's not you know real sensitive maybe for the times he was ahead of the curve but uh, that's not where we're at now yeah i think that's well said we covered i think we we talked enough about the third segment which was the the soldier and the roman woman who was helping to support herself through prostitution well, one point of interest, she's the same young woman that we saw in Open City who's yeah. kind of, again, kind of you know, dabbling and dangling back and forth. Must have been just sort of a, a typecasting that she fell into or something like that. I think she was somebody's I – don't, I don't mean this to undermine her role in the films, but I think that Rossellini knew her because she was the girlfriend of one of the writers that he was working with, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's. I. I don't love that segment. Uh, I don't hate that segment either. But and I don't hate most of this. But, but he. Um. I thought she was actually. She. She did a great job. I think the segment yeah. is maybe the most, or the second most melodramatic kind of like. But I guarantee you that kind of thing happened. Maybe not that exact specific, ridiculous confluence of events. But you know, that kind of thing. And I think hope. You're looking for hope wherever you can find it. And I think. I have a lot of empathy for her, and I, I just think she did a great job. I thought she was she was great. And even the young man's kind of rhapsodic uh, idealization of this chick that he met. Right, she didn't even exist. Incredible, him. right? But but right, but but it was this incredible you know historic moment. You know the invasion and you know breaking into the city and and the flowers and the you know the tanks rolling down the boulevard. I mean, you're just I mean, good grief. That's that's like a peak moment of a person's entire life. Yeah, you know? and yeah. so he happens to hook up with a girl and kind of has this idealized version of who she is I mean, he's really just a a young man who's kind of swimming in hormones at the moment really <laughs> but but there's a certain you know poetic uh, poignancy that, yeah. that is kind of grafted onto his imagination and now six months later he's just like this burned out husk because of all the stuff that's happened since then so again it's just, it's the kind of young people coming of age type of thing that i thought you know, it captured a moment it captured a feeling do you think there was a persistent sort of anti-americanism to this film in some ways which would be fine i'm totally fine with that uh, given the circumstances but like the americans are pretty much totally treated like almost all of them as kind of bumbling semi-idiots who are pretty annoying and not real well liked well it's mixed because they are still representative liberators 
Yeah, at at times, but that that usually is looking backwards as opposed to right now. They they, they brought the muscle. They, yeah, they, they were the Germans' liberators. asses and got them out of there. But yeah. then it's like once that kind of fits the whole ugly American stereotype. You know, maybe some of them are are nice guys, but there's a certain swagger and yeah. we own the world. And and again, victorious troops throughout all history. Uh, tend to behave like obnoxious assholes, you know, entitled and all of yeah. that when, when they feel like, hey, we've conquered <laughs> the world. Who can stop us now? And then you just throw America's own sort of unique thing into yeah. all of that uh, compared to Italy's old world traditions. And, and yeah, it's just it's not a very uh, harmonious <laughs> confluence of, of cultures and, and temperaments. And Carmilla accuses Joe of, you know, being the same as the fascists or the Nazis, another guy with a gun. And I I think that's an overriding impression of the American occupation as well, that you, you trade one capture for another in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah. There's some amount of Italian, what is it, uh, pride that, that is being trampled upon for sure. It's just, I find it, I find it fascinating. I have no issue with it. I, I, I do, it's, I, I think this is historically accurate that Hershey's was the chocolate bar they were giving out. And my only reaction to that was like, wow, what a crappy chocolate to be given. <laughs> Especially in a place with much better chocolate historically. <laughs> better than eating boots though, are Yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. <laughs> Before we move on though, one last note, I, I did kind of introduce this segment by saying we talked about it already, but you know, this word schmaltz gets thrown around in this episode a lot or soapy or melodramatic. Sure, it's melodramatic, but I would like to give credit. You know, Scotty's used the word irresolution a number of times, and I think that's a perfect word to apply to what I think is the brilliant style of the storytelling that, yes, we do see narrative crescendos, and yes, there are moments that are, like, constructed and diagrammatically unfolded, but when we talk about this romance between this Roman girl and this U.S. soldier, like you'd think in a more schmaltzy, stereotypical story, they would then come together at the end. Yeah, he finds her. They do not. You uh-huh. know, they they both separately indulge in the fantasy of their remembrance of their first contact. She tries to orchestrate a reunion, gives the address through, I guess, the landlord at the place where she does her hookups. And asks him to go see her the next day, and she will resume being the Francesca of his dreams. And he not only doesn't show up, he not only leaves her standing in the rain waiting for Prince Charming to arrive again, but he tells one of his buddies that it's right. just the address of a prostitute and throws it in the street. He says it's just the address of a whore. I mean, he doesn't even call her a prostitute. It's like, there's a whore. I mean, just like basically spits on the whole idea oh i was drunk i wasn't even thinking straight last night and it's time to move on and then they pull away with the coliseum right in the back it's just like whoa that's a kind of a, a kick-ass ending for that little segment you know? yeah it's kind of in the same vein as like we can justify all these things we can justify every single one of these things like with the match but why didn't she just write <laughs> yes. francesca or why didn't she just say look I'm, I'm her yeah i mean you know the, the, again the like, whole romance the whole twist of the story right and he's yeah he, she's he's too drunk for that but no, like maybe you could no. just say i know where she is right she did she right. said i know where francesca lives and she'll, right. wait, no, no, and she'll, she'll be waiting for you but on the paper she gives, it to, a, she gives it to the landlady francesca. give it to him right right <laughs> right 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 or tell the landlady <laughs> to tell him <laughs> like, it's, sure sure fair enough but the reason why she doesn't come out that night is i'm francesca she wants right. to be the francesca he remembers no, she no, doesn't want i agree muddy. with that okay all right I completely agree with that. What I'm saying is there's a way to set up that same reveal where she can step out and be this new thing for him 
because she knows how drunk he is, he's not going to remember whatever, just set it up better. She does a very poor job of setting it up in a time where, you know, no cell phones. She's not texting him. She's not hitting him up on Instagram. She's not sliding into You just into want those people DMs. to be perfect, Arik. <laughs> it's just well, it's just because this is where the soapiness comes from because it's such a setup. It's so manipulative. It's 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 so manipulative, which is like it's fine. Like I I think especially at this time period, that level of manipulation in a sad direction. I, I think at some point in my notes, I say that all of a sudden we're in <laughs> Sullivan's travels. Yeah. But um, at, at any rate, I think that level of manipulation in that direction was actually quite new and innovative at that time. And I'm looking at it from the eyes 75 years later going, what we, this is a bad version of this. But it's to David's point, I think earlier, it's it's an emerging thing. And it's it's very, very, very vital at that time period. So I don't want to take anything away from that. But just as a modern viewer, I'm looking at this like a little bit like the way some people are mad when people don't have cell phones. That one, I'm like, well, they didn't have them. But in this one, I'm like, she could have just written her name on there and this would have gone a lot better. You know, it's fine. Does anybody have any thoughts about the episode in Florence, which is the fourth chapter? Okay. I'll just set up briefly what it is. This episode takes place in Florence uh, in sounds like the summer of 1944, where half of the city has been liberated. The north part of the city, north of the Arno River, is still occupied by Germans. Um, There's also Italian fascists operating there. There's also Italian partisans fighting those factions in that part of the city. But it's fairly impassable. It's hard to get there. We have, uh, as our main characters, we have that Italian partisan Massimo, who I was talking about before, found his neighbor in the square asking about his family. He wants to get to the other side of the city because he wants to rejoin his family. And then we have this American Red Cross nurse named Harriet. And she remembers what is heavily implied to be a romantic dalliance with a painter on the other side of the river. He's become, in the distance between when she last saw him, actually a rebel leader going by a codename Lupo or the Wolf. And she needs to go see him before she's taken to a different part of the country on a different assignment. They join forces together to team up to go to the other side. And it's and it's kind of a beautiful, sprawling, it's visually very exciting. It's got sun-drenched light the whole time. She's Harriet's in this sundress that sort of echoes the the wishful thinking that they're both entertaining because the city, of course, is is totally destroyed. And it's specific in Florence that this looks like the consequences are are high. The stakes are high because you've got all of this recognizable, even though the the filmmaking doesn't focus on it, you've got recognizable, you know, ancient medieval and and uh, renaissance buildings you know beautiful things that once bombed you know aren't coming back but they managed to get the other side of the city through the vasari corridor over the ponte vecchio and then in in a moment of beautiful irresolution uh, <laughs> <laughs> massimo uh crosses a street under gunfire and they've all gone over rooftops you know they've gone through climbing over walls it's been quite an arduous journey and he and he gets across a, a street while you know german snipers are firing at him and then he just sort of disappears we never find out if he found his his wife and his son uh we're hopeful that they are but other people are dying in the street and the culminating melodramatic moment is that harriet with a dying soldier in, in her arms is told that in fact, Lupo has also died that day. There's a lot to like about this one, actually. But my issues are mostly around Harriet. I just – that they give us nowhere near enough information 
as to why she needs to find this guy so badly. And we know that she, she knew this painter. She asked about him to this soldier who was wounded. He's become this leader. And she's also sort of been told that she's probably going to be transferred. Right. So she wants to go find him. Fine. But like, that's insane. Like she's literally going across rooftops and under secret passageways through a war zone where people are shooting at each other to find this guy. And we don't know enough about what their relationship was to know if that makes any kind of sense. Like the guy is trying to find his wife and kid. I totally believe in buy into that. Like you'll do anything to find your family. In fact, I can't not believe in that if I think that the woman on the first story should have left the t- tower, right? So he doesn't know if his family's alive, but he wants to find them. He thinks he knows where, where they are. He's going to get there. And if he was the only part of this story, I would like it a lot more. But her participation in it seems totally insane to me uh, and and just completely, completely ridiculous. And then, of course, it's pointless, right? He's already died that day. It, we know it's going to be pointless if we've been watching this movie because we're in the fourth segment and it's for sure not going to work out. Now, Harriet doesn't know that, but we as an audience know that. So I'm like, okay, this is pointless. This is going to be pointless. It's so ridiculously dramatic. It is beautiful. I completely agree. The the cinematography, the shooting, the everything that happens is really well done. Um, it's probably the maybe the best of all of them. But it just is so ridiculous and movie and melodramatic and ridiculous that she is on this journey at all to me. David, Scott, do you think it's ridiculous? Uh, I won't say it's ridiculous. I think I appreciate this segment more for the location shooting, just for the idea of Florence, you know, in the kind of crosshairs of, of, you know, where the war is burning hottest at the moment. Um, Yeah, the characters and, and their stories and their relationship, that actually felt more ornamental i was honestly just more engaged with the the trek across the city the portrayal of of uh you know the you know the you know the germans kind of viewed over over uh you know from rooftops so from high angles to me this was really more of like a visual set piece and just kind of intriguing on that level uh, because these are real locations, uh, even though I've never been to Italy, um, you know, I recognize some of the architecture, and it's just like pretty, pretty stunning to think about this world-class, you know, cultural hub, you know, kind of grinding under the boot here, and and people just having to to scrap it out there. So, yeah, this is probably the the one where the character relationships were the least engaging for me because i i think i will sort of you know buy into eric's um critique here is that you know it it does this just feels a little bit contrived even the fact that she's in this this little sundress you know i mean that's yeah (laughs) she's wearing what she is but it's like that's not really what you want to wear when you're running for your life through a sniper zone it just it almost feels a little a, a little frivolous you know so uh, to me, yeah, this was really just more about sort of advancing the story further up the Italian peninsula. And, you know, I guess the the poignancy of searching for someone, you know, they're out there on the front lines. They're, they're a leader of the resistance. You've got your personal relationship with this guy, but he's also got his larger reputation. You know, he, he's, he's Lupo. He's the great leader. And now he's just been gunned down. So there's a, a tragic element because – uh, a brave man has been shot down in his prime, and there's the the sadness of of uh, what seems to be a romance that's now been snuffed. And so, you know, th- th- those were all pieces there. But to me, this was really just about let's let's look at Florence uh, through this lens here and seeing it in a in a unique moment in its history. 
I would say that the the pointlessness of her quest is is the point of it. That like one of my yeah. I mean one of my favorite authors desperation Albert there, right? was well, not even the desperation. It's the fact that it can't be parsed. Like it's irreducible by nothing but itself. You know, like in, in Albert Camus' The Stranger, Merceau kills a guy in the sun because it was hot. You know, and that's never ever justified. And that's the beautiful thing about that novel. But that's the point of that novel. That that's novel the point a, of the novel. I would offer that's also, uh, and I would offer that's also, if you look at this story with that lens, that's also the point of Harriet's behavior is that it's not mm. justifiable. I don't know. I think you're being very charitable. That's fine, but I just think you're being very charitable. <laughs> I feel very charitable to this film arc. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> yes, I know you do, and I and I'm with you. I, I I appreciate your charity in the sense of like I think that's a good thing to do, but I don't know. I think for me that if if that's the case here, we need more. It, it just needs to be set up better. Like it's just it's so arbitrary. Like she finds out he's the and maybe I guess you're going to say the point is it's arbitrary, but she just finds out that he's this lupo guy like five minutes earlier she immediately abandons her post and like just throws her entire life away in a completely absurd manner like that is there is i do not believe that situation for one second like i don't believe anyone would have let her do that i don't believe that guy would have taken her along i don't believe she would have been in her sundress i don't believe i nothing about her story is believable to me at all his story yes her story on this one no but i will say i do love Love, love, love the stranger. So I'm going to try to buy into that metaphor because it's a great book. <laughs> you don't sound like you're trying very hard, but <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try. No, from this moment on, that was my moment of decision of trying. Okay. Well, I'm going to switch the tables on you, though, because we're going to talk about the sixth segment. And I think you said you like this like one this the best. One. And do. I think this is the least successful one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, of, of course, i'm gonna right? i'm gonna let you why don't you set this one up art tell us what happens in, in the sixth final segment so it's the as we said that each of these segments is preceded by some sort of newsreel type footage explaining kind of the setting the scene and in this one we learn that it's the uh it's december of 44 and we're gonna hear a story while all of these other things are apparently well known and and Part of the annals of history. We're now going to hear a story less discussed, but but very important to Rossellini. And what the story is is that three members of the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services, it was like the kind of predecessor to the CIA that was around during World War uh, Two. And right. some of these officers are operating behind the German lines to help the Italian partisans, who are the anti-fascist resistance movement in Italy, in the Po Delta. And they're fighting with the Italians to try to destabilize the Germans and help the war effort. They, in the story, they rescue two British airmen whose plane has come down. Well, actually, first they they try to get a supply drop, and the supply drop fails. It, it the, the Germans catch onto it and destroy the supplies, or they don't get any of the supplies. Anyway, they 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 go to rescue these two British airmen. They run out of ammunition and are captured. And the next day, the the partisans who are declared to not be prisoners of war because they're not part of an official army are executed because supposedly they're not protected by the Geneva Conventions. And while the Americans would be protected and the British because they are legitimate soldiers, although I don't think the OSS guys actually are, but that's fine. They're outraged at what's happening with these partisans being drowned in the Po River, and they try to go and, and, and help, help them and are shot down when they try to interfere. Is that a good summary? Yeah, that works for me. 
I like this one, but I can also totally believe that you don't. I think the reason I like it, it actually it's kind of random. One of the things I know about this film is that it inspired Gilo Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers, which is a movie I absolutely love. And right I kind of think that this might be the, the one that got him. <laughs> it feels a yeah. little Battles of Algiersy, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah. So I like that. I also like the fact that it's the most brutal in some ways. I mean, you got the partisan in the river coming down. I like that it's sort of the Americans are not bumbling and treated comically. They're kind of with the Italians. They're fighting together. I like that the commentary on the war matters with the British and the supplies and what's going on. I like the um, the reality of the brutality of the treatment of these partisans that we see that real uh, – how – how bad it was to be captured and that kind of thing. I, I think that it's a little melodramatic again that these Americans rush over to help them. I do not believe that that would actually happen, but it's it has a nice moment and it kind of ends in a kind of nice way. And then there's that text on the screen, which is meant to gut us, I think, is meant to be emotionally <laughs> upsetting. Uh, and what, what, tell us what the text is. Do you remember? I can't remember exactly what it says. The, the okay, war, it says, war ended it says, the next happened, day or something like that. This happened in the winter of 1944. By spring, the war was over. That's right. So it's, it's yeah. the idea here, again, is that this is also pointless. And, and and it's all pointless. And I completely agree with Rossellini, by the way, on that, that all of these individual moments are pretty pointless because this whole thing is pretty pointless. Although I would push back on that a little bit in that in, in my opinion, and this is a completely different podcast, the only war that I know of that is completely justified is World War II uh, in, in terms of what the Allies were trying to achieve. Right. But, um, you know, the individual moments like this, these guys going to this guy to try to make this stand is pointless because they're not going to stop the Germans from killing the partisans. They're not going to escape. They're not going to survive. They're not going to continue their war. Like nothing they're doing has any real value other than in a sort of almost like um uh, a cosmic sense because no one even knows about their story except that rossellini's making this movie but the idea is if you if you ignore that fact this story will be untold right we've been told yeah. that so the pointlessness of and it kind of then sheds a light back on the entire movie and says okay all of this is kind of pointless no one knows about almost that no one will ever discover that that uh, woman actually was the one who shot the german and not the yeah. not the not the other way around no one will ever discover who francesca was no one will ever you know none of this really matters and i think that that actually is pretty pretty powerful it didn't work for me because of course i by that point i was like i just want this movie to end but um but i think it's <laughs> but i but i think it could be very very powerful and it's a it's a it's a powerful statement i just don't think the film does enough for me again to back that up but why do you not like this one i agree with the things that you said about it it's just that it doesn't feel like that's the kind of film we've been in. And for you, that was a virtue. For me, this felt like, the at the same time, the most extraordinary and the most ordinary of the chapters. And what okay. was extraordinary about it didn't work for me because the ordinariness of seeing this film at this time, it's just started to feel like a much more conventional war film. Mm. I think the cinematography is beautiful. Mm. Um, I sometimes find the dialogue a little hard to oh, hear. Yeah. Yeah. There's the English dialogue because there's no subtitles for the English dialogue. Yeah, and very um, weird. So yeah. there's a little bit of, I have a little bit of trouble tracking some of the story, but I know what's going on and it just feels like the canvas has grown beyond the parameters that I've agreed to up to this point. Even though there's been a little bit of gunfire in the other segments, now it feels like we're really in the trenches of a battle and it is, it is beautiful and it, I think it's well done, but the small 
smallness of the moments that have appealed to me during the course of the other chapters are a little bit betrayed here. Yes, it's still the pointlessness is the point. You know, yes, it's that, you know, all of this violence is not only useless, but it's totally disconnected. You know, it's totally secret, as you were saying. So I like that. And I think the ending is actually not only perfect for this segment, but perfect for the film as a whole. Because it closes a couple of circles. So I think, I'm not sure if you mentioned in particular, but that, that body floating in the river, that partisan with the sign floating down the Po River, is how this segment starts. And when we see the partisans and American OSS officers being killed at the end, they're shoved into the river. So it closes the circle of the bodies floating down the river. But it also closes like the, the greater superstructure of the film, which starts with the Allies arriving on the shores of Sicily. So the Po River, right, empties into the Adriatic, and the Adriatic empties into the Mediterranean. So in a sort of, sort of symbolic sense, the bodies of the dead meet the allied battle groups arriving oh. right so i think that's beautiful i think it's really well done but i have to wait through 15 minutes of something <laughs> that doesn't quite fit <laughs> to get there just a war movie it feels that way yeah yeah i think that's very fair yeah well it's not really clear to me what the stakes are here i mean obviously there's there's partisans who are trying to you know snipe away and take out the germans and the germans are trying to you know, punish these rebels. But I'm not sure what is really trying to be accomplished here. I agree. This was a, a difficult story to track. The contrast of the visuals now of suddenly we're out of outside of these city environments. Uh, we're into the broad daylight, this kind of unique river delta here, uh, you know, the kind of marshes and the swamps, the, the, the boats that ride so low to the water, the men keeping their cool and their cover. There is kind of just a, a unique novelty, uh, after all, sort of the you know, more urban and claustrophobic settings that we've been in. But, I, you know, again, I wasn't sure what the outcome of this battle was was intended for. Maybe it is just a depiction of kind of the cold-blooded murder that's going on. Forces that have been set in motion to just, if you see the other guy, kill him. You know, that that's all there really is to it, which underscores the the wastefulness and the horrors of this of this entire situation. But yeah, I, I and I think because the ending itself underscored that whole idea of the futility of it all, that message had been already been kind of raised and reinforced multiple times throughout the course of this film but i think it does give the film a powerful conclusion but there there was a lot that happened in this segment that it's like i'm not sure what it added to this situation or added to my understanding there was that one very powerful moment of that young child uh, that kind of toddler who's screaming and and you know just gut-wrenching cries as his family's been massacred there's a dog running around and the soldiers who kind of come upon this scene i mean that's just yeah uh, it just kind of seared my brain last night watching it again even i'd seen the scene before but it just really struck me really hard about how often did you know people come across scenes like that of just just abysmal tragedy and and you know, just kind of a gut-wrenching sadness that this little child's been traumatized and somehow they've got to pick up the pieces and, and move on, you know? So some interesting moments in this. Uh, but again, I think it was the, is the power of that resolution and just the, um, the sadness to, to say, yeah, these things happened or things like them happened. And, uh, this is our sort of testimony for the ages of, of what went on and, uh, what we had to build upon, uh, to, 
you know, to make the world a better place <laughs> to use a hackneyed little cliche there. And did you have a favorite segment, David? Uh, a favorite single segment. Um, gosh, let me think about that. I think RQ said the sixth one was your favorite, right? Well, maybe. I don't okay. know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I think it's more of a cumulative effect. I mean, maybe if I was to sit down and really start to break it down, I'd, I could rank them. But, I, you know, I, I feel like I was actually drawn in pretty early on. I think the first few segments were all you know pretty effective for me. Yeah. Just because they, they, they pulled my mind in different directions. They just got me thinking about vicariously for sure what it might have been like to be a, a participant in this conflict and, and to view it from many different angles. You know, this last one here, in, in some ways I, I get the idea that this felt more like just a, a, a war movie, but I mean, the, the, the battleground, so to speak, is just so unusual. It's just all this flat water and and you know boats uh kind of skimming across the surface there uh again without any real sense of military strategy going on here it's really just a a fight for survival yeah uh the germans probably know they're losing they they know they're in retreat uh they just want to do as much damage as they can while they've still got the opportunity to do it just out of the spitefulness and i guess you do have that little kind of uh moment towards the end kind of like where we had the you know, the little speechifying at the end of Rome Open City, you know, again, building the thousand-year Reich and yeah. kind of the bluster and the aggrandizing, you know, this is our quest. We're going to, you know, we're going to build a new civilization. We've got to destroy everything that came before it. Of course, in hindsight, you see the absolute arrogance and, and the appalling foolishness of it all. And yet it it did very real damage uh, while it labored under that illusion. And people of that time had had to listen to a lot of that type of rhetoric uh, that, uh, you know, bow to your superiors. We, yeah, we know this is painful, uh, but it's it's for your own good and we're the master race. And, and, and they'd said that with conviction. They said that because they believed it. Yeah. And that was really going to supposedly change the whole course of history. And all it did was create enormous pain and you know, you, you just can't undo that. You just got to live with the reality of, of just how colossally deluded and misled that, that society was and how many, you know, countless individuals and communities had to suffer because they had the ability to inflict this, you know, warped a sick vision upon the world and the rest of us just had to deal with it. Yeah, it's beautifully said. I think that's a nice way to end the episode, to summarize it that way. So I just want to thank you guys for joining me this morning. I've really enjoyed this conversation and this debate. And unfortunately, Scott had to leave a little bit early because he lost his connection. But thanks for joining us also, Scott. And uh, listeners, you can look forward to the third installment of our coverage of the Robert Rossellini War Trilogy coming next month. Thanks so much.